Hey everyone and welcome to Risky Business, your weekly information security news and current affairs show. My name's Patrick Gray and yes, Adam Boileau is back on the show this week after slaying COVID. Uh, He will be with us in just a moment to talk through all the week's news. Uh, And then it'll be time for this week's sponsor interview. And this week's episode is brought to you by Trail of Bits, the security engineering firm. And Dan Guido from Trail of Bits will be along a little bit later to talk through some work they did for DARPA on examining the security fundamentals of blockchain technology. And um, yeah, some surprising findings in there, actually. And uh, he'll also tell us about the podcast series uh, Trail of Bits produced. It's a pretty short season, like six episodes, 20 minutes a piece, but they really put in some work on that one. So uh, worth checking out. Um, That is coming up later. But first up, of course, it's time to talk through the week's news with Adam. Um, Adam, just quickly before we get going, I just wanted to correct an error from last week's show. Uh, During the news segment with uh, Dmitry Alperovich, who is filling in for you, uh, we said that you couldn't use Apple's iOS lockdown mode if you had an MDM profile on your device. Uh, It turns out that was wrong. You just can't change the MDM profile when you're in lockdown mode. So that's to stop people being, you know, enrolled in malicious MDM, uh, which actually makes a lot of sense. But if you're a corporate user, you can indeed use lockdown mode with your MDM uh, and everything will work. You just can't uh, can't change to a, a, a malicious profile. So just wanted to clear that up for people out there who might be corporate users who are disappointed they couldn't use lockdown mode. Uh, but let's get into the news now. And the Department of Homeland Security's Cyber Safety Review Board has released its first report, which is a post-mortem on the Log4j incident. And I, I actually found it well, I found parts of it very interesting. What did you think of it first? Yeah, I thought it was a, a really solid write-up. Uh, there's definitely some some good advice in there, and it was nice to see some of the timeline aspects kind of all pulled together and, a, you know, a good summary uh, you know, of what was a pretty big event. And I think um, I was also interested to see that they kind of shared the same feelings we did about, you know, a little bit of surprise at, at how big it didn't go. And yet the the conclusion that maybe just bad guys are bad at Java. Yeah. It turns out actually, yeah, that that's that that appears to be what has happened. There's a good summary of the kind of actions that US government and various bits of industry took. But yeah, I thought overall it was a, a solid output, uh, you know, from this new organization. And yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's absolutely well worth a read. And some of the conclusions like, um, you know, in many respects, everything kind of went right. You know, yeah. in that the bug was responsibly disclosed and it wasn't, uh, you know, previously used by China, uh, you know, ahead of disclosure to the Apache Foundation and resources were, were you know, mobilised very quickly. There was a you know, really coordinated response and yet it's still going to be around for years, which makes you wonder about, you know, what the worst case of those bugs is going to look like. Yeah, so I mean, the part that I found interesting, like you, was the timeline, the fact that they were able to determine that there wasn't exploitation of this bug before it was actually reported to the Apache Foundation. There was, I think there was someone who had published, who who was talking about it in China and publishing on it before it was widely known about, but that was because I think the Apache Foundation actually added a fix before people were talking about the bug and it kind of leaked out that way. I think that's the assumption in the report. Also, some really interesting findings with regard to uh, the Chinese laws that say that you have to report uh, bugs like this to a ministry, a government ministry, within 48 hours of notifying the vendor. And Alibaba did not actually hit that deadline. They were late. And there are press reports, the, the report cites press reports that there were sanctions levied against Alibaba for failing to hit the deadline, but they couldn't pin it down. And while they got cooperation from the Chinese government on some of this stuff, they actually did get some cooperation, which was, uh, I got to I got to be honest, a little bit surprising, but the Chinese government wouldn't really give them any answers on that. So yeah, certainly some very interesting elements. I feel that the part that disappointed some people was the, the recommendation section, right? And some people were a bit disappointed because the recommendations were kind of boilerplate about, uh, you know, we should do best practice type things. And what else do you expect? You know, what what else do you think they're going to say? There's not going to be anything wildly out of the box coming from a report like this. But as well, uh, this is the first one they've done. So I'd imagine we might start seeing some more daring recommendations in the future. You're not going to expect that coming out of the first report is what I'm getting at. 
No, I think you're right. And, you know, some of the recommendations are exactly what you'd expect, you know, being able to understand inventory or environment, understand software supply chain, software builds of materials, you know, the things that we know can help make responding to this easier, but is really expensive and complicated. And I mean, some of the, the organizations that are on the board, you know, thinking like Heather Atkins from Google, for example, right, they've done decades of work, you know, trying to understand what makes up their environment and all of the components and those kinds of things. Like it really is not an easy thing to do, but it is the right thing to do. So, you know, some of those recommendations are good, but for most places, probably, you know, still unfortunately a little impractical. Now we're going to talk about Joshua Schulte, who who was, of course, the alleged uh, Vault 7 leaker. Uh, he is now the convicted Vault 7 leaker and facing up to 80 years in prison. For those uh, who are unfamiliar with the story, this is a guy who developed, you know, for want of a better term, hacking tools for the Central Intelligence Agency, uh, wound up copying a bunch of them and leaking them to WikiLeaks because he was a he was disgruntled essentially. And um, yeah, his first trial was was had to be thrown out. And um, yeah, this is the second time around, and uh, not looking very good for old Josh. No, he certainly did not come across well in any of the kind of reporting around this. Uh, and I think, um, you know, if anything, maybe making sure the staff vetting process weeds out people <laughs> like this guy from doing that sort of thing would be a useful takeaway for, you know, for the CIA and other intelligence agencies. But yeah, there's a lot of people who are very glad to see this guy actually now wearing the wrap for, you know, what was not a pretty process, not a, not a pretty leak for anybody involved. Yeah, and keep in mind too, a lot of the tools that he leaked were things like uh, malware that could be installed on smart TVs if you had physical access to them. So they're the types of tools that agencies like CIA give to assets and agents in the field to to physically install on things. And, you know, once this sort of material is disclosed, it can enable investigators in target countries to figure out who's been, uh, you know, doing the CIA's bidding and... Um, you know, that, that can have some pretty dire consequences to, to those people. So leaking this sort of stuff is dangerous is what I'm getting at. Yeah, and certainly the level of disruption it must have caused operationally, you know, when all of a sudden all of your tools are burnt, as you say, there's the investigation aspects, there's the, you know, like risks of now being spotted and then kind of attributed back, there's just all sorts of bad stuff and I, you know, the amount of disruption they must have faced um, would have been, you know, difficult operationally, but also... Yeah, as you said, there's a real risk for the people involved, you know, on the ground on both sides. Um, so, yeah, it's just a, a horrible, messy thing. Although, I will say I did use one of the exploits from Vault 7 on a gig, and it proved quite useful. So, you know. <laughs> <laughs> you are the uh, you know, inter leaked intelligence community exploit connoisseur, Adam Boileau. I think that needs to be your new title. And, you know, I yes, will point so. out too that the CIA is perfectly um, uh, competent at risking its sources uh, without requiring leaks, mm -hmm. uh, if, if we remember their their terrible internet communication system that they enabled that was completely uh, figured out by adversary nations. I think it was Iran and China, wasn't it, that figured this one out? Yeah, I think so, yes, yes. Yeah, so that was yeah. uh, that ended badly for a lot of people. So, um, you know, leaks are bad, but the CIA can always find a way to kill people who are cooperating with it. Um, I, I actually had a, I had a COVID fever dream that my department at work was responsible for the Bay of Pigs, and it was a terrible day at work. <laughs> um, I had a fever <laughs> dream that I already told you about because it was very funny, uh, that... For some reason, GCHQ had two octopuses in separate, or octopi in separate tanks in their reception. And then someone told me they were named Patrick and Adam, as in GCHQ in the UK, for some reason, kept pet octopi and named them after us. And we were like, holy yeah. shit, I can't believe that. You know, we've really made it when the, um, you know, SIGINT agencies are naming their pet octopi after us. That's wild. Anyway. Um, gives us a bit of <laughs> gives listeners a bit of an insight into just how infected we are with this um, with this whole thing. Uh, what do we got here? Oh, yeah, some interesting research out showing that uh, Chinese APT crews were targeting political journalists in the United States uh, just ahead of January six. Yes, which. Probably not a surprise. And we've seen ongoing targeting of journalists by Chinese, you know, state actors looking for information about, you know, sources and stories and stuff. But seeing them specifically targeting, you know, DC and like pivoting towards DC political journalists right in that period, 
I mean, it doesn't, doesn't feel good, does it? No, it doesn't. But I mean, as I've said on the show before, journalists are great targets because of not necessarily, you know, we don't publish everything we learn. We have a lot of off the record conversations. People tell us a lot of stuff that we can't use, but informs our views and, uh, you know, great targets, right? I'm, I'm just, yeah, you know, absolutely. I, I got to be honest. Uh, <laughs> what do we got here? Uh, good one from Jonathan Grieg over at The Record, uh, apparently ransomware crews, and this is very smart of them. Uh, yeah. They're actually building search functions into their leak sites, which will make that information, yeah, searchable and usable to anyone on the internet who wants to connect to them, which is obviously going to heighten the impact of any information that they add to the leak sites and, and really ramp up the pressure on people to pay, not just um, uh, to restore their systems, but to have this data removed from these searchable indexes. I, I thought this was a really interesting development. Yeah, this is a really smart a smart move. You know, anything that makes the data more accessible and helps people, like makes uh, victims unable to use the, well, no one's really going to get the data. There's been no evidence that it's been misused, blah, 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 blah. Like if it's right there and you can search for it, that you know, is a harder line to kind of pull. Um, and, you know, honestly, it's pretty easy to stand up a good search engine, you know, build the system to do it. Um, I'd be worried about bugs in this back-end search engine exposing the origins, but I'm sure they've reviewed whatever, you know, nasty Java uh, search engine implementation that they've built. I'm sure they've reviewed it and there'll be no right, necessary Right, right, <laughs> Probably not, actually, Adam. Like, probably, probably not, not no. you know? So, you know, in that respect, uh, there may be some avenues for researchers there as well. But, yeah, anything that makes ransomware, you know, more emotionally potent uh, is going to make it more money. So, yeah, smart move. Now, the Conti leaks got a lot of attention earlier this year when the war, the Russia-Ukraine war kicked off and some very disgruntled people uh, with inside Conti or maybe some researchers we don't quite know uh, just went berserk uh, doxing them left, right and centre. There were, there were also the TrickBot leaks that didn't get quite as much attention, but now a firm based in the UK called Cyjax uh, has actually taken a really good uh, dive through the TrickBot leaks. And AJ Vicens has done a write-up from CyberScoop, uh, but he links through to the report. And it is pretty interesting reading, actually. Uh, TrickBot, by the looks of things, is an extremely you know, highly organized uh, uh, criminal organization, uh, quite structured and very professional. And yeah, it's just really, really interesting stuff. What did you make of this? Yeah, well, this is, um, whenever these leaks happen, right, it's always, you know, I want to spend the time and go dig in and read it because you just know there's going to be funny stuff and juicy stuff and dank memes and, you know, all of the water cooler banter, you know, because yeah. they're essentially in the same business that I'm in, just a bit, you know, less legit. But there's just, <laughs> just a lot, little, just a little bit less legit, legit little, yeah. Little, yeah. But I mean, so I, I'm, I'm, I'm always curious, and I don't have time to do it. Uh, so somebody else sitting down and, and digging through and, and tying all the identities together and making graphs of how it works is just super interesting reading. Um, and so yeah, the um, it's well worth a, at least a skim read through. And if you're in the, you know, if you're interested, totally read it because there's just you know all these juicy tidbits about you know how they get paid and how work gets allocated and you know the, the structural aspects of doing this at scale is kind of interesting so yeah i enjoyed it thank you so the interesting thing that that struck me about this though is trickbot is one of the criminal organizations where cyber command we're, we're actually targeting them under the pretext of protecting the uh 2020 election and now we've got this trove of data <laughs> and like scanned passports and stuff now it could be it could be uh, a disgruntled ukrainian insider right like i i would buy that but it could also be uh, it could also entirely be like Cyber Command, right? Like pick, choose your fighter, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, certainly if you know if they have a mandate to disrupt them, then this feels pretty disruptive. Yeah, uh, you know, having your you know your passport photos and, and all your details and your tax numbers and whatever else you know, like full Krebs grade doxing going on. Um, yeah, it feels disruptive. So yeah, absolutely. It could be disgruntled Ukrainians. It could be cyber command. It, it could be something else. We just just imagine if you were just imagine if you were at cyber command and tasked with doing you know very carefully overseeing disruption of this group, and then you get to have a front row seat while some pissed off Ukrainian just wrecks them. <laughs> <laughs> it could be both. You're right. It without having to you know without both. having to fill in forms in triplicate and get permission mm. from lawyers and stuff, and you're just sitting back <laughs> watching the carnage just going sweet uh yep. that's uh, that's great 
Um, <laughs> now, Catalin Kimpanu, who writes our Risky Business News uh, newsletter, he's actually on leave uh, this week, but he did publish an edition of the newsletter on Monday and it contains some um, really interesting stuff that I just want to quickly walk through if you haven't subscribed do go subscribe to Risky Business News. It is a newsletter and a podcast that we publish uh, three times weekly. Uh, so yeah, like the first thing that I want to talk about that uh, Catalan's written up is uh, a, a changes to uh, Google's like Android app permission stuff. They're, they're taking a more like data safety centric approach, which makes a lot of sense until you realize that they're now allowing developers to basically just pinky swear that they're only using certain permissions, right? So, yeah. Yeah, it's, you can see what they're trying to do. I mean, if you look at the list of, of like, uh, like the current permission system where it says, you know, like it needs access to this data and this data and this data, and that's generated kind of programmatically during the app publishing process. For most people, it's difficult to distill that into something you can then make decisions about. Uh, or in some cases, you have apps that require permissions that sound scary, but are actually kind of reasonable in this context. So you can see why they want to make it more human friendly. But, you know, relying on app developers to be honest and nice and answer correctly and, you know, the, the sort of consequences they might face being months down the track that doesn't necessarily seem like it's going to deal with the problems that they have faced in their app store over the years to me. Yeah. I mean, I remember the big freak out when uh, fa the Facebook app required access to a microphone and everyone's like, Facebook's listening to us. It's like, no, if you want to send an audio message, uh, you know, it's going to need access to the microphone, right? Yes, yeah, so, exactly, exactly. Yeah. So stuff like that has, you know, has been pretty con uh, confusing to consumers. So I guess maybe this is a recognition that those sorts of uh, permissions management uh, features don't really do much for most users, right? So, so in that sense, I can sort of see how this isn't much of a change, really, uh, at a macro level. It, it, it's certainly a change that would make people like you and me uncomfortable, but we're not yes. the average Android user. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, yeah, I, you know, I do understand, and I guess you know, Google's not dumb, um, and there must be some kind of like trust but verify sort of thinking here, where you know they maybe they have some way to actually go and validate it but it's just yeah that's not not how it's currently being advertised right as, as a system with some kind of checks and balances but but I, I think one thing that's interesting here is that now the apps have to specify if they share with third parties and things like that so you know i think moving from a pure permissions based thing to a data safety and understanding what happens to the data model uh, actually makes a lot of sense look there's a couple more items in here uh chinese government officials have apparently summoned alibaba executives to a meeting uh following that massive data breach involving shanghai police data you know the one billion uh, uh citizen uh leak so i'm not sure so it looks like this was from an Elasticsearch database that was hosted on alibaba cloud right but they're being hauled in so i it's unclear if alibaba was actually managing this Elasticsearch inst uh, uh, instance, but they're still being being questioned, which is uh, interesting, right? Because wouldn't that be great? You know, how quickly would would uh, insecure Elasticsearch instances hosted on like Microsoft, Google, and Amazon infrastructure? How long would they last if Google executives, for example, got hauled in <laughs> for questioning every time one of those got exfilled? Mm, so it's that's interesting. That's a very right? good thought. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I think you know any any throat to choke, right? It's going to get the job done for them. So, um, but yeah, you, you're right. That why you know if you could go you know, punish Jeff Bezos for every insecure S3 bucket <laughs> on Amazon, then yeah, maybe they would get the, some of the defaults would be fixed or whatever else. So. I mean, the accountability levers that China has, yes. you know, they, I mean, they're, they're going to be kind of effective in a lot of instances, right? Like a lot of these Chinese things, people say, oh, that's terrible because, you know, we could never imagine doing a similar thing here. But then once you really break it down and go, hang on, why not? You know, are those cloud computing executives in a position to do something about this problem? And, you know, unquestionably, they are. So why not haul them in? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And uh, one more story that I wanted to mention from the newsletter is Denmark has banned Google Workspace from uh, local government use, which is interesting. And this uh, this came after some legal action where there was a there was a council, you know, like a local government was using Chromebooks and Google Work uh, Workspace. But because the data was going overseas, it was like a legal problem and they've just had to ban it all. So this is interesting because, you know, from a security point of view, that's not a good outcome. But no. this is 
a decision being made on a on sort of data governance principles, and it and it sort of reminds me of some of the stuff Tom Uren and I have been speaking about you know, in the Seriously Risky Business uh, uh, podcast, et cetera, uh, just about how the, some of the problems that TikTok is facing because they didn't build with data governance in mind when they sort of created the thing. And, you know, now you see that even companies like Google are starting to hit a bit of a wall with some of this, some of these concepts. Yeah, yeah. It's, it is interesting to see, you know, privacy and sovereignty diverging from security because everyone, you know, kind of used to consider privacy stuff as just like, well, that's just, you know, the security department's problem, but they are separate things. Um, and as, as you say, like, this is probably a negative security outcome because what are they going to do? Like, run Linux and open office or you know, Windows and, and local Word or something. You know, local Word probably still sticking stuff in the cloud these days. Who even knows how it all works mm. now? Um, so, yeah, security probably near negative, but respecting privacy and thinking about data sovereignty, like that is actually a good, is a good thing. So, yeah, yeah. yeah. Dan Gooden over at Ars Technica has written a little bit of a feature on contemporary phishing and how uh, phishing crews these days, just standard operating procedure is they will use some sort of proxy to fish OTP. Then they will steal the session cookie and then pass it down to the user. So from the user's perspective, their login is seamless, uh, but this proxy actually captures the the, the session cookie and, and allows attackers access to the thing that's been authenticated. Um, I think the reason I wanted to talk about this is there's a lot of a lot of stories coming up about sort of FIDO auth, right, and web auth in, et cetera. And I think really now is the time that we have to take stuff like WebAuthn and Fido, like hardware keys, et cetera, seriously, because they defeat these types of attacks. And I, I, I don't think people quite understand the extent to which one-time password-based MFA auth just doesn't get you anything these days. Yeah, I mean, certainly if you if you want to break into Microsoft stuff or Google stuff, these, you know, any time in the last four or five years in a real organization, like this is a necessary thing to have in your toolkit. And we've been using it, you know, professionally in our work for a long time that like we built one of these quite a lot of years ago now because it's just necessary. And even, um, you know, just getting past the sort of behavioral stuff or the, you know, multi the impossible travel checks or, you know, there's just a bunch of reasons why this kind of, technique is necessary and a useful part of the toolkit um uh and you're right that you know obviously fido werewolf n style things you know is the answer and there is still pretty widespread misunderstanding of that specific nuance right that there is a mechanism in fido that prevents this and actually it was, it's very well illustrated because the um the promoted comment uh, in that ours piece is someone in the comments going well but how does this how does fido work like how does this stop it and then the director of standards development from FIDO pops up in the you know in the thread. And it's like, well, actually, let me tell you how it works, yeah. uh, and proceeds to explain comprehensively and very well. So, yeah, people don't get that nuance and how important that is, and they're going to, you know, as they get fished. I mean, I just think it's amazing that we found a comment on a tech article that's actually worth reading. Uh, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, ours is slightly above average in that respect. You know, their comments are better, th you know, better than than. You know, slash dot was. <laughs> now let's talk about this research that came out of an Israeli company called Orthomize into Okta, right? Because it's uh, we've got dueling statements here: one from Orthomize, one from Okta. Um, Orthomize appears to have done some research that would allow an attacker who's already compromised an Okta admin account to do some pretty gnarly stuff kind of post-exploitation with regard to syncing uh, additional passwords and obtaining those passwords uh, for other admin accounts or just accounts in general, and also being able to masquerade as other users, uh, which is very useful for hiding uh, once you're rummaging around in someone's SaaS stuff. But Okta says, well, these aren't bugs. This is kind of intended functionality, so we're not going to fix it. But here are some best practices guides if you want to mitigate it. First of all, Adam, can you walk us through what Orthomize has actually found here? Because I'm actually surprised this one didn't make more news. Portswigger has a write-up on this, and that's about it. Uh, so, yeah, there's four things they've reported, of which really only one is, is the one that matters. And that's um, the ability to, as an Okta admin, not necessarily like the, like the super duper admin sort of... Um, yeah, uh, an a, app admin. You, know, you can be an, an app, app admin, admin yeah. level access. And, of course, Okta has a very granular admin permission scheme as well. So uh, you can configure 
the the rights of your admins in a, in a number of different ways. Um, so the main thing they've come up with is a mechanism to extract clear text passwords from Okta as an app admin or similar sort of person, and then you know obviously once you've got clear text creds, you can go off and 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 you know, attack other systems, use them elsewhere, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And this is a feature, like there's a couple of ways at least that you can do this with Okta, you know, either configuring an app that take clear text auth or using, in this case, the password synchronization mechanism. So there's a, uh, a standard called SKIM, uh, which is for uh, federated auth and identity integration stuff to, to set up accounts on other systems. Uh, and this you know, basically is just a standard for you know, passing around usernames and other details so that accounts can be created in other systems that are not like fully single sign-on federated auth native sorts of things. And so their technique involves basically just setting up a, a skim password synchronization endpoint on an attacker controlled machine. And then as people log in, the accounts are provisioned through this mechanism to the attacker and the attacker gets clear text credentials, which you could have done other ways as well. You could set up a you know an auth endpoint that takes clear text creds. And this is, as Okta says, a feature and you can turn it off and on or configure it, whatever else. But really the crux of this conversation comes down to, is this what Okta admins expect? Is this what Okta customers expect to happen? And I did a quick poll of a couple of Okta admins uh, that I know and said like, hey, do you expect to be able to get clear text creds? And one said, uh, no. Uh, and the other said, well, no, but it must have clear text creds because there's password synchronization. Um, so, you know, it's a, they're both right. You know, yeah. extracting clear text creds from Okta is probably not what people expected. And like how long those clear text creds live, how they're stored. Uh, I think Okta said that clear text creds are stored encrypted with a per like customer key. Um, but so, I mean, this is why but, we have password hashes is so that if you have a compromise, you can't recover the passwords. So, and I'm not sure if they, they're just saying they, they take a trove of uh, plain text passwords and encrypt them or whether or not they're passed around uh, in the clear at time of login or like it's just, it's, and I guess this is why I wanted to talk about it is because when it comes to the way these IDP services work and these protocols like SKIM, which is the uh, yeah system for cross-domain identity management, uh, when it comes to all this stuff, and I know how much SAML hurts your brain, right? <laughs> but, and I guess this is, this is what I want to talk about because whether or not this is a bug or not doesn't really matter. It's not really material to the fact that IDPs... Uh, the way they do things, kind of complicated, not well understood, and very nuanced. Yes. I mean, I have a lot of sympathy for Okta in this case because, like, their whole business model is, you know, papering over all of the hundreds of different ways that auth and identity work in hundreds and hundreds of different applications and then presenting one sensible interface. Of course, there's kind of compromises necessary and, you know, things like, you know, the naive thing to say is, well, they should just use password hashes. But the reality is, right, there's so many different ways password hashes can work. There's iterated ones, there's differently salted ones. And, you know, if you're trying to integrate with other systems, in the end, the only robust way to do it is to have the clear text available so that you can generate whatever necessary auth mechanism for things that aren't, you know, SAML native or whatever else. And yeah, there's a lot of complexity in there, uh, especially when it operates in, in a cloud service like this, where you can't go introspect it. Um, you know, there's always going to be complicated bits in there and people's expectations don't necessarily match with the technical reality. Right. The, the, the part that I'm trying to understand though, Adam, is under what circumstances does Okta wind up storing plain text passwords? Yes. You know, is this after you've enabled skim, do, do they actually store them or are they just passed around at time of login before being vaporized? I mean, what, you know, under what circumstances uh, do these passwords actually get A, passed around or B, stored in plain text? Yeah, and, that's a, and that is a very, very good question. And Okta doesn't really answer that uh, in their blog post about this. And certainly other uh, identity platforms do just plain, you know, store all the plain text creds forever in a big encrypted blob and help itself to them in the future. And stealing all of the passwords for all time in one go obviously is a lot worse than stealing them, you know, at login time when they're passed around temporarily. My expectation for Okta, and I don't know the specifics of it, my expectation is 
that they will take the clear text password at login time or password change time. They will store it encrypted reversibly temporarily because it's a distributed platform. They've got to be able to handle failover midway through and blah, 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 blah. So my expectation is that it is stored in effectively clear, you know, crypto per customer for a period of time and then used to log into other services. Whether that period of time is the duration of the Okta login, because obviously you can go click on an app you know, three hours after you logged in and it needs to have the GTX creds available. So I would expect it to store it for the duration of the login so that it can use it if it needs it and to throw it away at logout time or session expiry. Whether that's what actually happens, I don't know. But, mm. you know, if that's what they did, that would match my expectations. And one of the principles of Unix is the principle of least surprise. So don't surprise me, Octo. Yes. So uh, I guess the question is, with this work that Authomize has has put out, is this the sort of stuff, is this the sort of technique or thing that you would use on an engagement? Yeah, I mean, yes, it is. Like we've, we have built tools to extract creds from Okta in other ways in the past. Um, and yes, this is a thing that we would use if we were post-auth on somebody's Okta. So yeah. in that respect, you know, it is clearly a feature. But it's a feature that as an Okta admin, I want to see front and center. This is a thing I can turn off and that Okta admins are made aware of that, that this is a thing that can happen so they're not surprised. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. Look, uh, we've linked through to the Authomize uh, uh, blog post uh, in the show notes and also Okta's response where they're like, these are not vulnerabilities, and uh, it's it's not is is bolded as well. Uh, so they definitely <laughs> they sure is, sure told us. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's intended functionality. Um, so you know, I mean, I think when we were discussing this before we were recording, you were like, "They're both right." <laughs> you know? Yes. Uh, which is which is kind of interesting, but I think yeah, as I say, this is just one of those uh, one of those cases where you know, it's it's all about the nuance and these systems are just so complicated and not well understood and this is a great yeah. example of, um, of uh, you know, how that can get a bit interesting. Okay, so moving on and we've got a report here from the record written by Jonathan Grieg, uh, uh, Deputy Attorney General uh, Lisa Monaco in the United States uh, says the Justice Department actually seized and returned a half million dollar ransomware uh, 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 payment uh, that a U.S. healthcare, oh, that multiple U.S. healthcare facilities uh, paid to a North Korean government ransomware operation. Yes, it's not a hundred percent clear uh, how they recovered. I guess they're being, you know, kind of intentionally cagey. They were similarly so with uh, when they recovered the payment from Colonial Pipeline uh, as well, or part of the payment from Colonial Pipeline. But yeah, they followed the cryptocurrency, and then magic something something hand wave happened, and money came back. Uh, so you know, I guess if if it's a reusable process, uh, then that that's good, um, probably good for some people who've paid. Uh, so yeah, nice to see some money not going to the North Korean nuclear weapons program. Yeah. Now look, and uh, staying with the the North Korean uh, stuff, because this is being this has been something that's been coming up a little bit more often. Uh, U.S. officials talking about it a little bit more, etc. But uh, we got some work out of I think out of Microsoft, yeah, out of MS Tech. Uh, looking at a North Korean crew targeting small business, uh, ransomwareing small business with uh, some ransomware called Holy Ghost. Now, this is different to the other strains of ransomware that we've seen them using. And, and Microsoft has sort of designated this crew as like an emerging threat. Yes, although uh, according to the blockchain, it does appear like they've not actually managed to successfully ransom anybody yet. Uh, so like that's an interesting, um, you know, it, it takes special effort to be, you know, being processed by Microsoft threat intelligence people when you haven't yet actually made any money. So yeah. that's a you know novel novel turn of affairs. Um, but yeah, they certainly could do with some cash, and I guess um, you know they'll get there eventually. Look, I just feel like with everyone talking about them all of a sudden, I, I think we're just seeing some activity that's going to escalate. And I would not be surprised if we see North Korean uh, state-backed actors getting involved in the full spectrum of online crime types, right? Like BEC and romance scams coming coming soon to you from North Korea. I mean, we've already got them applying for jobs, you know, sending people to apply <laughs> for jobs so that they can be malicious mm. insiders and whatever. So it, it really does feel like North Korea is doubling down on stuff like ransomware as well, not just stealing from crypto exchanges and, and whatnot. Yeah, well, I guess they've got very real you know, money problems to solve and this is one of the tools they've got at their disposal. Makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Uh, meanwhile, there's been a Colorado police are investigating a ransomware attack on a small town. That's, you know, one notable ransomware attack this week. Um, but let's talk, and another one from Jonathan Grieg here, let's talk about what's happening in Albania, Adam, uh, where it looks like Albania, uh, the government there moved a lot of its services online as a, a kind of an anti-corruption measure. So they've gone all in on all 
or, you know, on online. Uh, and now they've had to pull a bunch of stuff offline due to a cyber attack, but they haven't really specified the nature of that cyber attack. Yeah, yeah, we don't know whether it's denial of service or whether it's bugs or, you know, exactly what's going on. Um, it does seem to have affected a, like a really large swathe of government services. Uh, the reporting said that the tax filing portal still works because it's on a different box. Um, but yeah, whatever, you know, front end portal or whatever thing they've built, uh, clearly having a pretty bad day. And we just don't really know uh, anything more beyond that. Uh, they have said that, you know, it's been taken down as a preventative measure. So it might be. You know, they like always the say that, Adam. They always <laughs> say that. <laughs> But I was like, like the Australian census, maybe, you know. Well, that <laughs> actually is. was, that actually was a case where, yes. where they did pull it offline and were, were sort of, yeah, they kind of jumped the gun there and created yes. the problem so themselves. Like, but yeah. Maybe it's that, but yeah. Uh, yeah, we just, we just don't know either way, you know, bad time if you're trying to get anything done in Albania at the moment. Now, Adam, uh, a warning for people who might be a little bit sympathetic towards Ukraine and consider downloading some, uh, you know, DDoS applications that they can use on their devices to target Russian targets. Uh, you never really know what you're going to get when you download this sort of stuff, uh, as this story by Lorenzo uh, Franceschi Bicarai over at Motherboard proves. Yes, so he reports that the uh, Turler crew, Russian uh, state-sponsored hackers, uh, actually built a mobile app and associated website uh, for a, like, uh, they call it a Cyber Azov. It's meant to be, you know, kind of part of the Ukrainian cyber army and will carry out distributed denial of service attacks from your phone, which, you know, that's some innovation. Um, yes, if you download it, it does not, in fact carry out denial of service attacks from your phone. It instead sends all of your personal information to the Russians so they can try and figure out who is participating. Um, yeah. Google Google said that it didn't get very many installs, so that's good. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it makes sense. Like that that seems like a smart play if I was, uh, you know, one of the Turler crew. So you know, points for trying. Mate, that's actually it uh, for the week's news. Now, uh, you got whacked pretty hard by the old COVID-19. I feel like in comparison to you, I got off pretty light, uh, to be honest, where I was sort of down for about five days. But uh, yeah, you certainly weren't feeling too good the last couple of weeks. Yeah, no, it's been a been a long couple of weeks. Quite a lot of sleeping, which actually isn't that bad. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's it, it whacked me around pretty good. Um, so I'm I'm glad to be back, and the brain feels functional. Um, so and you, yeah, on, but on unfortunately, you know, you 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 had to miss your trip to B sides Cheltenham, which was uh, very disappointing for you. <sighs> yeah, that that really did suck. I tested positive. Uh, two days before I was due to fly and like having to wake up on that Monday morning and, and accept the fact that I had to go cancel everything. Yeah, it sucked. It sucked yeah. a lot. So very, very sorry, besides Cheltenham. Very sorry, you know, spook friends. Uh, I'm sure I'll find some other reason to come across your way one day. I think I, I, I got COVID, but just like a little bit turned down compared to everyone else who everyone I know who got it when they were really sick, they were falling asleep at 2 p.m. And for me, it was like 8.30 or 9 p.m. And then I, it's the last 10% of recovery that seems to take the, yeah, the longest yeah, time. And I realized once I found myself still awake at 11 p.m. that I was better. That was how I knew. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And that took a while. I haven't seen 11 p.m. in a long time. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, look, I'm glad you're back and feeling better. And, uh, yeah, it's great to have you back on the show. And, of course, we will chat to you again next week, my friend. Barring, you know, go get your flu shot, though, because our commercial manager, him and his whole family are down with influenza A right now. So so go get your flu vax. Yeah, I'm, I'm certainly not in favour of another round of sickness. So, yes, that is a good plan. And I will hopefully talk to you next week. That was Adam Boileau of CyberCX there, back on deck after recovering from the plague. Oh, and uh, just a note, don't forget, I will be back with another podcast uh, tomorrow with Tom Uren in the Risky Business News podcast feed. I'm doing two podcasts a week these days. Uh, to subscribe to that one, just search for Risky Business News. And that podcast focuses really on big picture cybersecurity stuff that is of interest uh, to policymakers and people like that. Um, but uh, yeah, there you go. So you can check that one out tomorrow. It is time for this week's sponsor interview now with Dan Guido of Trail of Bits. Trail of Bits is a security engineering firm that does a wide range of work, uh, everything from app auditing to actually building custom security tooling. One area where they've been doing a bunch of work over the years is on blockchain stuff. And uh, I think for Dan and his colleagues, it was just something new and novel uh, some years ago. So they started doing some research in that space and um, 
it turns out there is a need for security engineering there. If you don't want to, you know, have all of your magic internet money just depleted instantly in a flash loan attack. Uh, so after a while, you know, this crypto stuff wound up being like a little sub practice within Trail of Bits. It's something that they actually uh, do quite a lot of. So they do things like audit smart contracts and, and whatnot. But they've also done some deeper work on blockchain uh, fundamentals. So uh, here's Dan Guido talking about some work Trail of Bits did uh, on blockchain security for DARPA. Enjoy. So about a year ago, DARPA hired us to review the security of blockchain software. It's been uh, increasingly used by people for ransomware, for laundering money, for doing a whole bunch of things that a, a country should care about. And they wanted to know how safe it was, whether it's open to manipulation, whether there are key weaknesses or, or risks that aren't being fully described by the industry for uh, both awareness, but also there may be opportunities to improve these these fundamental issues before the entire world relies on it in a way that is, is unsafe. Um, so we worked on a report for about a year. We had a team of researchers uh, working together to find unintended centralities in blockchain software. Uh, when we looked at it, we looked at a, a lot of different blockchains. We looked at Bitcoin, we looked at Ethereum, we looked at a whole bunch of third-party ones. Um, we found that a lot of the underlying cryptography was safe, but we found that the implementation, the, the architecture, the, the way that they operate, the operational characteristics of a lot of these blockchains um, are open to manipulation in, in ways that severely undercut the proposed benefits of them. I mean, you just described computer systems in general, right? Like, uh, you know, this reminds me of the days when people thought uh, TLS, SSL made a website secure. And it's like, well, no, I mean, the cryptography is there, but it's all the other stuff around it that you got to worry about. Yeah. I mean, we eventually had to worry about the crypto stuff as well, but that's 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 a different story. Uh, yeah, it's, it's really kind of like obvious stuff here, but there's a, a problem in the blockchain industry that I'm sure everybody's aware of that a lot of the proponents of it are not willing to address the possible weaknesses of it. They're, they're kind of either you love it and you're a proponent of it and you think it's going to solve all the problems in the universe or you hate it and you're unwilling to look at it. So Trail of Bits really sits in the middle there where uh, we don't love it or hate it. We just respect it as another technology that has emerged that people are using for, for things that matter. And we want to get to the bottom of, well, how safe is this really? And when you get to the bottom of it, you realize that there's a whole bunch of stuff here that's surprising, that um, uh, there, there don't seem to be this, these egregious cryptographic risks. There don't seem to be these um, uh, like software security issues that you might find that would take down the whole blockchain. But what there are is there are uh, per pervasive amounts of unencrypted traffic going over the internet that um, determine what transactions get mined. And anybody who has control of a router or any intermediate network device that uh, sits between a large amount of Bitcoin traffic could potentially censor transactions, which is kind of a really surprising oversight. Uh, but there's a whole bunch of things exactly like that that add up together that if somebody abused them would be a really substantial capability. Um, so we put out the report not just for the fact of like making people aware of what these risks are and studying the current state, but also because we think that some of these issues are possible to solve. Um, and that th this is what the community should work on solving uh, if they intend this to be used for any real purpose in the future. Now, I'd imagine when you're talking about solving this issue, you're not talking about, you know, an overhaul of something like uh, Bitcoin, you know, the Bitcoin blockchain. You'd be looking at the next generation systems that will inevitably uh, uh, be developed, right? Yeah. So this report studies a whole bunch of different kinds of blockchains. It looks at uh, what you call like the proof of work blockchains, the old school kind of, you know, early generation stuff like like Bitcoin. The, the planet uh, wrecking stuff, yeah. Proof, proof of work, proof of how much coal you've burned to, to mint a, an <laughs> yeah. e-token. Proof yes. of carbon. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, but it also looks at proof of stake, uh, which a lot of people are purporting to be the next generation of a lot of these blockchains. It doesn't use, doesn't have all those environmental side effects and um, shifts sort of the balance of power between uh, nodes that are operating in the blockchain space and the miners that all of a sudden don't exist. Yeah. Um, but again here, like these things are purported to be the savior of a lot of critical uh, weaknesses and flaws and security issues in blockchain software, as well as these environmental benefits and power reduction. But uh, there haven't really been great critical looks at, well, do they solve the problem really? And there's a whole section of our report that discusses how a lot of proof of stake blockchains are open to greater manipulation 
than proof-of-work blockchains. Um, they have significantly less margins of safety and the opportunity for somebody to perform financial attacks against them to uh, deny service to the blockchain or um, otherwise interfere with it is, is actually quite a bit better as an attacker. Um, so these are things that I don't think people are really adequately sharing with their users. Uh, they're not adequately sharing with people who are building applications on them and they need to be addressed. Uh, so this report provides a roadmap for all these sorts of issues. Now that report is available publicly? It is, yeah. So uh, DARPA here paid us to advise the public and advise potential users of this technology about the risks of it. So with that in mind, it was always intended for it to become fully public. Uh, so the report is public. Uh, we've released tools that help map out the ecosystem. So something that we looked at was uh, centralization in terms of um, supply chain security, like who writes code and how does it make it into the Bitcoin network? Or how does it make it into the Ethereum network? And uh, we wrote a tool called It Depends that helped us answer that question. And It Depends is a really special piece of software that lets you uh, build ex like exquisite uh, software bill materials for particularly C++ applications, which no other real software out there can do. Um, so there's a lot of secondary effects that I think are really positive uh, that come out of DARPA having funded this work. Uh, so now the public gets to benefit from it depends. We also have a piece of mapping software that helps us understand the current state of various blockchains. Uh, it's called Fluxture. Uh, that's open source as well. Uh, and the report and the data that we've collected are all available. Now, um, as much as we talk about some of these foundational issues, the thing that, I mean, you know, you, you know what I do for a living, right? I, I sit down, I basically <laughs> get exposed to every single headline uh, affecting cybersecurity every week, right? And every mm -hmm. week there's these hundreds of millions of dollar thefts. But these aren't the result of... Uh, problems with the fundamentals of blockchain, right? This is a problem with um, poorly written blockchain apps, right? Now, what what right. can you do uh, systemically to try to uh, uh, fix that issue, right? Because it doesn't seem to me that there's 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 really anything you can do at a sort of blockchain infrastructure level to stop people writing dumb apps that are susceptible to things like flash loan attacks. That's right. There really isn't. So what we see as uh, you know, auditors in the space is we see there's this bimodal distribution of people that have it done really well and people that just forget to do security at all. Um, but, you know, it's very easy to get the confirmation bias of being able to read the news every other week and see that there's another hack and think that everything is just garbage. But in fact, with blockchain clients of ours, they come in with the most highly verified, highly secure highly specified code that we have out of any other industry that we work in. It is possible for people to do far, far better on software security for blockchain software for smart contracts than it is for most traditional software. Um, well, I've actually been quite, I mean, they're quite, they're quite small, right? Like these applications right. aren't, aren't really as complicated as something like a C++ program running on a desktop computer that does all graphical elements and blah, blah, blah. They're quite simple, simple things. They've done a bunch of things right, and they've done a bunch of things right by accident that the regular security industry has been trying to get right for decades. Um, and a lot of it is because, not because code is law, not because there's unreversible consequences from failing, but really it's because distributed systems don't scale. And the <laughs> so fact you have that they to don't scale keeps these programs small. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That's, that's quite uh, funny. So there's a keynote I gave. It's called What the Blockchain Got Right. Um, I'll, I'll give you a link for the show notes, but uh, it's a really incredible journey in, t in terms of like some things that they got right by accident that really we should try to learn from. Since I would love it if other clients of mine came in the door with property tests and verified code and a deep understanding of the software they're building in the same way. Now, it's interesting. Before we got recording, I asked you if the blockchain side of your business had imploded with the collapse of this, you know, Web3 crap, right? Because um, it really is a, a trash fire at the moment. But uh, no, apparently, apparently, you know, the people who are doing serious stuff in this space are still uh, are providing your firm with plenty of billable hours. It's all, all full steam ahead. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um there's, there's no real barrier to entry for, for blockchain software. So there are a lot of people that um, aren't really serious actors that are fly-by-night kind of places that just pop up and disappear that are exit scams, right? 
Uh, but on the other end of it, there are people that are extremely serious about what they're building and have multi-year development plans and have the funding to back it up and don't store their treasury in a currency that's going to fluctuate in value. Um, they were smart enough to put it into stable coins that weren't like Luna yeah. <laughs> and can still pay their bills. Um, so well, and we there's a recognition. A, a, I mean, something something you pointed out to me, right? We've we've coined a term for it. You know, everyone knows TTL is time to live, uh, but we're going to talk about TT Fafo because uh, TT Fafo, <laughs> which is uh, time to f around and find out uh, in the blockchain space, is an ever reducing number. Uh, so it, oh, yeah. it, it seems like if you actually publish a vulnerable, you know, blockchain app, the time before someone actually discovers that exploits it and runs away with all of the money is pretty much instantaneous these days. So there is a recognition now uh, that if you're serious about this stuff, you need to do security audits. I mean, uh, that would explain why your business is still doing fine. Yeah, I mean, so the time to the time between f***ing around and find out on the blockchain is as minimal as possible. But the data that you get back from it is really incredible. The data you get back from it is not just, hey, I should do a security audit, but hey, I should do a security audit with trail bits. Or I should, I should start to specify properties for my code or um, I should have uh, security staff that works for me internally and you get a lot more granular feedback about it where I think a lot of the people in the industry they're always like oh well I want some kind of like crash reporting system where people can submit uh, incident reports and then there can be some government agency that all studies them and stuff but on the blockchain um, all the hacks are public because the blockchain is public and a lot of times you don't find out that you're hacked first. You get someone on Twitter tweeting at you that you got hacked because they're also looking at all of your code. There's no way to hide. Um, so it, it is a real pressure cooker for security expertise. Um, and I, I, I don't necessarily think this is a, a feature or, or a, a downside, but it, it does have really interesting effects. It's really funny, man, because I've, you know, we've been dealing with you guys a long time and it's it's just funny that you've wound up building this practice for no other reason and i mean the crypto practice that you uh run and by crypto i don't mean encryption i mean you know crypto world stuff you know you built this practice inside trailer bits because you thought oh this is cool <laughs> yeah, interesting problem. challenge yeah yeah exactly uh now you've actually uh done a podcast series a six-part podcast series i i participated in that uh you will hear maybe 10 <laughs> yes, seconds did. from me in one in one episode but there were a bunch of uh, topics you covered and you did cover some of this stuff uh in the podcast series right yeah, so we do a deep dive into the um, the blockchain research paper that we wrote and highlight some of the key points with the authors, with interviews with the authors and with other industry experts, like we had Matt Green on there. Um, we had a whole bunch of folks that, that we really respect uh, that were able to talk about the same areas. But Trail of Bits works on so many incredible research projects, and it's been difficult to get people to really like understand the breadth of activity that Trail of Bits does. Um, because a lot of it's really niche. A lot of it is really researchy. A lot of it is kind of like hard to understand if you're not in it every day. And we wanted to find a way to make these stories more accessible to a wider audience. And that's what the podcast is about. The podcast is about these tightly edited 20 minute bite-sized chunks of stories from the depths of trail of bits. Uh, we have six episodes. One of them is about the blockchain research paper. My favorite is actually about our intern program. Um, we got four or five interns together and had them talk about the work they did for our, uh, for, for our company over the summer and some of the results and uh, the follow through from, from after them. And uh, they're really just incredible, uh, in incredible stories that we hope that more people can follow along with. There you go. A couple of hours of road trip fuel uh, for our listeners. Uh, I will drop a link into this week's show notes if people want to check that out. Dan Guido, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks a lot, Patrick. That was Dan Guido there with a chat about some uh, blockchain work they did for DARPA and also a bit of a mention of his uh, uh, podcast or the Trailer Bits podcast. Big thanks to him for that. I have linked through uh, to some of the work that we discussed uh, and also their podcast series in this week's show notes. And that is it for this week's show. I do hope you've enjoyed it. I'll be back tomorrow with a seriously risky business podcast in the Risky Business News podcast feed. But until then, I've been Patrick Gray. Thanks for listening.